Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Robert Kelly, who is the Artistic Director of TheaterWorks Silicon Valley, which won the Tony Award for Best Regional Theater Company this past year. This is Robert Kelly's final season as Artistic Director, stepping down. There is no replacement yet. However, I learned that about half of the shows, give or take, will still be programmed because you need to do things two years in advance. I would also assume that there might be one or two things that are potential that you have to start looking at even beyond that. There always are. We're always looking for new pieces, and those especially require a, you know, a lot of lead time. You, you need to get the author's uh, engaged and working on things. And in some cases, there are, once you pick a piece, there's still time for additional workshop or readings to help develop a new work. And we've been doing uh, two or three new pieces each year on our eight show season. And often they're pieces that have emerged from our New Works Festival. So there's certainly some from this last summer's festival that we have on our radar and we're talking about and these are kind of commitments you have to make uh, pretty far in advance to, to make it happen. Uh, the same thing is true of recent Broadway shows or uh, successful off-Broadway shows that uh, if you want to produce them, you need to step up and let everybody know about it uh, because there's often competition or other uh, opportunities for the playwrights and their agents. So yeah, you have to keep ahead of the game a little bit. Well, I know that there are theater companies in San Francisco, you're at the top tier with ACT and Berkeley Rep, and then just below that, Marin or SF Playhouse has to wait until you pass on some of these. Well, in some cases, that's true. And in others, there'll be uh, shows that are coming in from out of town that uh, you might want to produce, but they're part of a larger conglomerate of people. So it's not like an absolutely set in stone pecking order for the rights to things. And in many cases, uh, looking around the Bay Area, all the great theater companies and uh, very different artistic directors, we're not all looking at the same shows. Occasionally, there's one that every single theater in the in the area would like to produce. And those are usually hit shows with a very small cast. <laughs> so it, uh, you know, it's something that financially makes a lot of sense. And it may also be a show that's so brilliant that everyone would love to get their hands on it. Do you ever find yourself in competition with ACT and Berkeley Rep? Sure. Uh, that happens uh, all the time. It's not on all the shows by any means because we, have, we do have very different artistic perspectives. And that includes both the new uh, artistic directors at those two great theaters, but also their predecessors. But there have been shows I cried over <laughs> that I wished we could have done. And uh, I'm guessing there are shows that we've done that others would have loved to do. Sometimes there are shows that I'll say, well, we didn't get to do it now, but a decade from now, after it's settled down a little bit, we'll get another chance at it. And uh, that's often proved to be the case. Well, you've been doing this now for 50 years. <laughs> do you wish on some level that you guys had created your own theater, per se? 
You mean our own building? Yeah. Well, um, it was a dream. Uh, we've always had that dream that somehow uh, we would have our own space. There's a lot of good that goes with that, uh, and you, you control your dates and your times and all of that. On the other hand, you take on a lot of responsibility and a lot of financial uh, uh, risk that can make life actually harder as it goes along. I mean, we've been very uh, lucky in having the support of uh, the cities of Palo Alto first and then the city of Mountain View. And to, together, we were able to piece together enough space and their two intriguing theaters to make a great season as it goes along. I mean, we do over 250 performances a year. We go year-round. We're the uh, only one of the three larger theaters that does do that. So when you sit down to, to try to figure it out, you either have to share theater space or have one that you completely control because that, that so many weeks of the year are we're in production or in uh, performance. Theaters like Berkeley Rep and ACT, they have two different stages. And even Aurora, the one stage is really tiny. In all of those theaters, part of the decision-making process, I know it's true for ACT, maybe a little less so for Berkeley Rep, is which theater are we doing it? Now, in the case of ACT, it's pretty obvious what goes into the Strand is going to be different than what goes into the Geary. Berkeley Rep, yeah, some shows may be better for a proscenium or a thrust. But for you, given that these two theaters are more or less similar, does it make any difference and is it just the calendar? Well, the calendar has a lot to do with it. We don't get to move from one theater to the other uh, freely. It's a, a schedule that's really pretty much set in stone. But the theaters are, in fact, quite different. They both feel like proscenium theaters. In Palo Alto, it's built in 1933, and it's a very small stage, really. It's very deep. It's 26 feet across. In Mountain View, at the Mountain View Center for the Performing Arts, the stage is 50 feet across. So you're dealing with physical spaces that are extremely different. And in general, a big show probably is destined for uh, the Mountain View Center and the smaller, more intimate shows for Palo Alto. But that doesn't always turn out to be the case. It, when we do our holiday shows, they need to be in Palo Alto. So regardless of their size, that's where they are. Actually, in some ways, uh, it helps economically because trying to build enough scenery for a 50-foot space is a lot different than building scenery for a 26-foot wide space. Uh, so you can do a little more scenically. I like the uh, ability to do uh, top-end main stage productions in two very different spaces. And uh, our subscribers have been uh, very loyal, uh, and they, uh, they appreciate the virtues of each of the theaters. And one theater is 25 years old, the other one's over 75 years old. So they, there are some, uh, some differences, to say the least, in creature comforts and all of that. But uh, I, I love working in both of them. Curiously, as someone who has to deal with sound issues, Lucy Stern has better sound. Well, Lucy Stern is about as small a space in terms of the audience space as you could imagine in the theater these days, whereas Mountain View is very large. So you're trying to deal with sound issues in an extremely big box, if you would. And it's a very tiny box at the Lucy Stern. That makes it easier to hear. The audience is, is actually closer together instead of going way out to the sides, and that keeps the sound, makes the sound uh, a lot easier to pick up on. 
we mic our actors at the Mountain View Center because uh, if you turn sideways there as an actor, somebody sitting sort of behind you really can't hear. That has made a big difference for us and for the uh, for our patrons. What's difference in the audience size for the two theaters? Well, surprisingly, they're not that far apart. One is about 400 seats. That's in Palo Alto, and it's uh, uh, just about 600 seats in uh, Mountain View. So very big space with 600 seats, a very small space with 400 seats. And yeah, they're just differences of uh, scale, differences of uh, intimacy. None of the seats are very far from the stage, really, in either theater. And that's, uh, I think that's an advantage. It, uh, it helps you... Uh, fully experience what's great about live theaters. It's live and they're real people and you can actually see them and depending how close you sit, you can actually uh, feel them <laughs> and look at the sweat, look at the uh, anxiety, look at the confidence that they bring to the show. If they were in New York, they'd be off-Broadway because they're, uh, I think New York is 900 seats as Broadway. I don't know the exact numbers and there are a lot of different sized theaters in uh, on Broadway. Some of them feel... Uh, closer to the Lucy Stern because of the age of the theater and the, and just the overall feel. But yeah, if you're in the third balcony at uh, some of the theaters in New York, you uh, you're you're in trouble. <laughs> I went and saw Hamilton in a preview, and the only seat I could get was at the extreme end of one row, and I could literally uh, I I think I could have hailed a cab from my seat. But you know, there's a lot of shows that need that size. I just saw. Hamilton there. I'd seen it in New York, but I just got to see it again here, and it was a wonderful show, and they did a great job of it. But, you know, a show with that kind of impact and ticket demand and uh, demand for as large an audience as they, can, as they can find, it really pays off to have a couple of theaters that size. Robert Kelly, let's talk a little about this past season at TheaterWorks. My favorite show, I had a couple, was Talk Everlasting. Before we went on the air, you were saying that that was kind of scary. It was like taking a giant leap, and you didn't know what would happen. Well, we knew that uh, the title of Tuck and the story, the wonderful story, uh, was one that was read in schools nowadays uh, that a lot of young people, you know, had become part of their reading, part of their uh, kind of exposure to young novels and so on. And there had been several films of it, including a Disney film, so it... It definitely had some youth uh, potential, but we also realized the book had not been written um, anywhere near the youth of a lot of people in our audience, uh, certainly including me, uh, that we didn't know if people would actually come. It's sort of an unusual title, and what might it be? But I totally believed in that show. I, I, I loved what it had to say. I loved the way that it said it, and the, the music was, and lyrics were superb. So we said, uh, let's go. Let's see what we can do. I mean, there's always a lot of pressure on a holiday show, especially here at Theater Works, because we've been doing a different show every year at the holidays, in some ways starting from scratch, as opposed to a, a Christmas carol or something that people are familiar with. Um, so you're reinventing the wheel every time, and there's a lot riding on the show. But we wound up with a wonderful cast and just a, a very beautiful show that was very touching and uh, had a lot to say about life and about uh, young people trying to figure out what to do with their lives. You directed it. I did, yeah. And you had to do some reconfiguring for the final sequence. The last part of the show is a, is a big challenge, and we made a, a few changes in it to tighten it up. 
we were doing it with a, a cast that had at least 10 and maybe 12 fewer people than the Broadway production. And what happens in the show is suddenly there's a, a whole progress of time through close to 100 years with a swirl of characters, which was easy to do when you had 10 more people than we did. And so we needed to uh, find ways to both tighten up the sequence, but also ask actors to take on more than one role in the same sequence and uh, make it all plausible. But in the end, it became this sort of silent ballet of life marching forward. And if you get it just right, which I think we did actually, the whole idea of the way life moves on and why it needs to move on uh, from generation to generation, life, death, marriage, love, all the elements that uh, go into our lives uh, were all revealed in about a 10-minute section. It was, it was a thrill to work on. Do you know if the show is going to be going anywhere again, or is this it? Well, our production is done. The show gets done around the country now, and I don't know if uh, there are other regional reps that have picked it up. Um, I'm eager to see what people's uh, schedules are for the coming year and the year after. But I did see it on Broadway in its uh, original version there, and it, it didn't last long on Broadway. I, my conclusion was it was, how to put it, uh, it was too sweet a show for Broadway. But I knew it was one I, I needed to do if we possibly could. It just intrigued me and entranced me. And uh, that's the re feedback we got from our audience as well. <laughs> well, uh, we were talking about it before is that, you know, of all the theater sh work shows I've seen over the past few years, that one, for whatever reason, stands out. Well, I think the, uh, the ending of it sticks with you. And uh, one of the bigger challenges is that the show is all set in August. There's a, a lot of talk about it being August, the time of year and all of that. And here we were in December doing our holiday show uh, that's all set in August. And I didn't quite know what to make of it. I wanted there to be a holiday feature. So in the very last scene of the show, which features uh, people from the past coming back into the present, we decided to set it in December and add a little snow to it. So that's, that's the way the show wound up. And I thought, well, that's a little bit bold. But I subsequently heard from both of the authors who heard about it, and one of them whom came and saw the show, uh, that they wished they'd thought of it themselves. And that they, you know, if they had a chance, they're going to change it. <laughs> well, it, it sort of makes sense since it takes place in the summer for the whole show and yeah. in the past. It's now winter yeah, in a exactly, certain respect. Yeah. Now we'll see how to get it into Pride and Prejudice, which is our next uh, holiday show. Let's talk about the upcoming season ending on October 27th is Mark Twain's River of Song. How did that come to theater work? The authors, uh, Randy Myler and Dan Wheatman, have had two other shows here at Theater Works, and uh, they were both just great shows that I dearly loved, and their, their shows... Uh, use a lot of music. They're not exactly musicals or even musical reviews, really. They they combine a huge amount of uh, music, mostly traditional songs, played live uh, by great musicians, but also uh, give you an entry into the world that they're portraying. Um, they've done shows about the blues uh, and the evolution of the blues, which uh, it's called It Ain't Nothing But the Blues. Here, it was a big hit, uh, and not too long after that, a couple of years later, uh, one called Fire on the Mountain about uh, mining country in America and the, both the uh, 
the music and the the challenges of life in that area, and I'd love them both. So when uh, when it came time to pick a final season, I was looking for something that was musically oriented, but wasn't a musical uh, per se. Um, I'm always looking for shows like that because uh, I, I just love the integration of music and drama. And this one, uh, when I heard that they were doing something uh, with Mark Twain and with the music of the 1850s and before, and it was just a little small production uh, in the Midwest, and I, I went, whoa, that sounds like our kind of thing. So I called them, and uh, they, had, they were actually doing it in a sort of dinner cabaret with a cast of three. And I said, "What? Where, where are you going with this thing?" And they said, "Well, we're dreaming that it will become a you know a main stage show that we can expand the cast significantly. It is about Mark Twain and his vision of life on the Mississippi uh, in that era. And uh, as soon as uh, we had that conversation, I knew it had to come here. And then uh, the final piece of the puzzle, not just having them come and work on the show and further develop it, but uh, finding Dan Hyatt, and he was available and eager to play Mark Twain, which was for the, for all of us in the Bay Area who are great fans of Dan's. He's one of our greatest actors ever. Uh, this was a, just made the opportunity all the more thrilling. There were a couple of earlier shows this season because you start... We start early, yeah, we're year-round. <laughs> year we start in the summer and uh, we end in the summer. Christmas show, Pride and Prejudice, I looked up Pride and Prejudice musical, and I found that there was one, but it's not this one. There have actually been a, a number of them around the country, and certainly a number of them over time. There's a, a ton of film versions of it, you know, BBC uh, complex special, the, the Colin Firth version, and then there's the Kira Knightley version, which is a wonderful film. I'd been trying to get Paul Gordon, uh, who's the composer and lyricist and adapter of the show, to do a Pride and Prejudice for a number of years. We had a great success uh, with his production of Emma, which is another Jane Austen piece that uh, proved to be a huge success here. And actually, Paul has, we've done four world premieres of his, various pieces over time. He did another version of uh, Sense and Sensibility, which uh, we haven't wound up doing because we already did a version of it uh, not too long ago, but it's still on our radar, to tell you the truth. But at any rate, I, I had uh, pleaded with him to do it, and the time finally came, and he uh, let me know that he was working on it, sent me one act, and then uh, eventually the whole thing. But there was no question that we were relishing the opportunity to put it on. And so it's such a well-known story, and so many people have read the book that it has its own challenges. Among them um, is the uh, is the challenge of casting uh, Elizabeth Bennet, Lizzie Bennet, and uh, Mr. Darcy, because they have a, a very distinctive style, life, thought process. Almost everyone uh, who's ever read the book or seen any of these films knows exactly what they look like and you know what they're supposed to be like. So you walk into the show no, as a director and a casting person knowing that you're trying to find someone who's so perfect for it that they will convince the audience that this is actually the version that they're, they're going to remember forever. So that'll be one of our challenges as we go along. <laughs> have, you, have you cast it yet? Yes, we have. So is this a world premiere then? This will be the world premiere of it. We, as I said, we've done several other world premieres from Paul. Uh, Emma, Daddy Longlegs, uh, Being Earnest, which was a musical of the importance of being earnest. And he also did a complete score for us for a production of Twelfth Night that we did that was set in the 
60s, and Paul wrote uh, music for that as well. We're old friends. We're, uh, I'm a great fan of his work. And we actually, the way we got acquainted was uh, with our production of Jane Eyre, which he'd uh, done on Broadway, and was a t he was a Tony nominee for his score. But he was living in L.A. at the time we produced it. He heard about our production, which was uh, the first one after the Broadway uh, show, first one in the country. Uh, he, got, he got curious and came up to see it, and he loved it, and that, that sort of launched this relationship. Next show you have is pianist of Williston Lane with Mona Gollaback. I interviewed her for that when it was at uh, Berkeley Rep a few years Berkeley ago. Berkeley did it a while back. And it's the same show. It's the same show, and she's a, a brilliant pianist who is telling the story of her mother, who was also a brilliant pianist, but whose career uh, was uh, nearly curtailed because uh, she was in Vienna uh, as at the time of the Kristallnacht and the... the uh, entire uh, Nazi takeover uh, and managed to get out of Vienna and to London as a result of the kinder transport. Eventually, uh, through skill and uh, the help of many other people in uh, London, wound up uh, fulfilling her potential as a pianist and became a very popular and important concert pianist in her own right. It's kind of the story that most affects me and why I felt it needed to be on the season. It's a story of the worst that mankind can imagine and the best in counterpoint. That's the kind of show and the kind of vision of uh, mankind that I, uh, I've always sought as we've put seasons together and found shows for theater works and its audience. Is that sort of why you chose Ragtime, too? Well, Ragtime is very much that same kind of story, you know, primary level. It, in many ways, summarizes all the themes that have uh, been essential to theater works over time. Certainly the blend of music and drama has been vital to us. I personally have a favorite period in history, and it's the, this exact period of ragtime, about 1905 to uh, 1915. But more importantly, it, it takes on aspects of life that uh, uh, I find uh, both terrifying and, uh, in, and in other cases, absolutely inspiring. The uh, path of immigrants uh, in America, the way they have changed the country, the challenges they have faced, um, uh, certainly in that era, which was a major era of immigration, um, and of course uh, it's reflected so much today in our uh, conflicts over immigration and the role of immigrants in our culture. That's a major theme. The racial prejudice uh, that haunts us still, uh, but was uh, so much more evident in uh, the, the turn of the century, is a huge theme in the show and has been a major theme for theater works from you know as far back as I can remember. Those two aspects sort of float along with the underlying premise of the American dream, is, which is that anybody can rise uh, in a culture that anyone or almost anyone can supplant all these forces of anti-immigration, anti-race, racial prejudice, and move forward. And, you know, not everyone can in this play. It, it's honest. It doesn't say it's not a Pollyanna kind of show. But by the time you get to the end, you feel that we as Americans and as a culture will survive, learn, uh, and move forward one of the finest scores of the past 30 years. I love the score. 
was as huge a success as I believed it would be on Broadway, both the original version and the, the later one, the la latest version of it. When I saw it uh, in, uh, I guess it was in uh, San Diego or L.A., yeah, LA, before, I saw that, yeah, before it went to Broadway, I was so moved. I mean, I actually couldn't move from my seat at the end of the first act. I was, I was just weeping and lost. Uh, and by the end, I was so incredibly touched that uh, we we went through amazing uh, convolutions to produce it at TheaterWorks the, the first time. And uh, it had a very large cast, uh, and that's what we did the first time. This time, uh, we've already done it that way. We're trying a, a whole new approach that's going to make it a much smaller cast with much more focus on individuals and inherently a more intimate uh, production than the kind of grand scale, grand operatic uh, um, hoodoo that the original one was. But it has had a wonderful place in the American theater, and now we're going to see if we can carve out a new place for it as a tight, intimate, uh, innovative show that still touches on all these wonderful themes. The next show you have is They Promise Her the Moon by Laurel Olstein. Uh, Giovanna Sardelli is directing it. It's a story of astronaut Jerry Cobb, female astronaut, uh, who might have gone to the moon, but she didn't. Uh, it's from Old Globe in San Diego and was off-Broadway. Well, it's interesting because uh, this show seems so remarkably contemporary, uh, and it's a story of a sort of loss in America uh, as a result of gender prejudice and uh, tells the story of this woman who was an award-winning pilot who trained through the same, basically the same program as the uh, Mercury astronauts, and then eventually was denied the opportunity to become an astronaut herself. Uh, and a year later, of course, Russia put the first woman into space. Tracking how all that uh, came about and uh, what it was like to have the goods, have the equipment and the talent, and to be denied because of your gender remains a, an issue right before us today in every possible way. So we, we embraced this show, and we actually uh, did it in our New Works Festival before its world premiere in San Diego with their uh, understanding that they would uh, be able to do the California premiere prior to our production, but that we were both planning to produce the play and uh, anything we could do to advance it and help it grow uh, would be important. So it was a huge hit in our New Works Festival. I, I then went down to see the uh, production uh, at the Old Globe, and it was a lovely, wonderful production. Uh, Giovanna directed it in the festival in, at the Old Globe, and she'll be directing it here. And it continues to grow. That's one thing we do at TheaterWorks is second productions. We're proud to do them. You don't get the same press. You don't get the same uh, you know, kind of buy-in into the future of the show. But you get a great show, and in many cases, we'll bring the author back in, even though it's already had a world premiere, to continue developing the show. That's the case with uh, They Promised Her the Moon, and Laurel will be here working on it. And uh, last year's production of Archduke, kind of the same thing. It had been in our festival, then a world premiere, then back to theater works. And by the time it got back here, Rajiv Joseph, the author, had completely rewritten it, changed the character, made the whole show tighter, better. And uh, we were proud uh, to be able to be part of that. And the final show of the season, The Book of Will by Lauren Gunderson, who's over at Marin Theatre Company. Uh, you're directing that. It's about the creation of Shakespeare's first folio. Is that correct? That is. It doesn't exactly sound like that's going to be a great dramatic uh, experience, uh, how to make a book 
But as it turns out, Lauren has made a brilliant, beautiful, deeply touching and very funny play about Shakespeare's uh, two of his closest collaborators, who in the years uh, just after his death decide to try to pull all of his works together into a, a single book. And it's hard to even imagine what that would entail in that era, since uh, when you think of how many plays there are uh, that Shakespeare wrote, each one, uh, you know, a huge work of art, but also a huge work of publishing art, because every single letter was set by hand um, in those days. Every single sheet of paper with was printed individually. Uh, this was an almost uh, insane idea, and yet watching them figure out how to pull it off and all the machinations of uh, publishing in that era and the immense devotion that these theater artists have to preserving not just the history of Shakespeare, but the history of their own company and efforts as a theater to make great, great theater. It's a love letter to the theater, this play. And I, I really couldn't imagine a more perfect last show for me as the artistic director of Theater Works to work on. We're starting to assemble a, a cast of local favorites and just wonderful people, and we'll see uh, how it all turns out. Uh, but Lauren, is a she's a genius playwright. Her plays are done all over the country. Uh, we've done some of them. Wren uh, Theater Company has, and there's a lot of our sm wonderful smaller theaters in the Bay Area who have done others of our shows. It's really quite a legacy of her work in the Bay Area, uh, and we're proud to bring this show in. It, it, uh, it really does fit 50 years. Well, it's your last show, but I would gather, maybe I'm wrong, that the July show is probably, even though you can't talk about it, the July show is probably set too. Well, not really. We, we're, really? we're still in the talking stage on what that show will be. There are a couple of shows that have We've kind of anchored down because we needed to for the upcoming 2021 season. And there's certainly a short list of the shows that we're considering. And there's also always an even shorter list of plays we'd do in a minute if we could get the rights to them, plays and musicals. It's intriguing. It used to be a little easier to get the rights to musicals uh, in the Bay Area because uh, many theaters just didn't do them. Uh, and uh, over the last decade, uh, that's changed dramatically. And even the number of shows that tour into the Bay Area has increased dramatically. In our case, at least, since we do three musicals a year, at least, uh, on our season, looking at shows that have been popular uh, in New York or whatever, but also looking at shows that we've, we're developing in our New Works projects gives us a, you know, a, fair, a, a pretty good-sized list of things that we'd love to do or that we are considering. Well, you've got Bay Area musicals, but they're kind of the standard things. I mean, we're putting aside the community theaters, of which there are tons around the area. There are wonderful ones. SF Playhouse does two, one major one, and then one more interesting one. It makes it harder for you in that all of these companies are doing shows, and you wind up, like with Rocky Horror, being two versions, one at ACT and one at ray of light in the same season. And it's being done down at uh, San Jose Stage. Yeah. So that's three. Yeah, that's coming up. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of interest in musicals. There are, there's certainly uh, not a lot of communication when everybody's picking their seasons. The, and uh, many of these shows, the, uh, 
uh, let's just say that the folks who own the rights to them aren't necessarily telling you there's a show next door. You try to keep track and keep up to date. We're, we tend to do shows that uh, others aren't doing, and uh, that's our kind of one of the ways we've gone about uh, making our way as a theater company. And we're very often doing shows that have that are musicals seeing the light of day for the first time, like Pride and Prejudice. That'll be our 70th world premiere, Pride and Prejudice. So that's uh, that's pretty exciting as we get into it. And some of the other shows, once you know, occasionally there'll be shows that have toured into the Bay Area that uh, we will uh, remount. Fun and, home, fun home, for example. Normally, if a show has toured here, uh, it, it probably takes it off our list. But there are a few shows that have touched me so deeply that uh, I really have just simply said, as soon as we can get the rights, we're going to do this show because it means so much. Ragtime was a good example when we first did it. Um, And Fun Home, when I saw it in New York uh, before it went to Broadway, I actually ran into the composer Janine Tesori in the lobby uh, after the show, and we knew each other well because we'd actually... Uh, done the West Coast premiere for her very first musical ever, Galileo, back when, um, and we became friends. Uh, and I said, uh, Janine, uh, I am so moved by the show. Uh, uh, I would, I would love to bring it to the West Coast uh, to Theater Works. And she said, I'd love you to as well, but something's going on, Kelly. I can't discuss it right now, but something's happening. And of course, what was happening was they were planning to take it to Broadway, but that didn't change. And it an ounce for me, and it did come through on tour, but I was determined to do it because of what it had to say and what a brilliant score and script it was, but also because I felt we could make it something deeply personal here at TheaterWorks and something deeply personal for me in directing it. Robert Kelly, you're directing Book of Will, and that's <laughs> the last one. Are you directing anything in the next season well, I don't have any plans at this point, so if you're thinking of starting a theater, I'm completely available. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Robert Kelly, who has been for 50 years TheaterWorks Silicon Valley artistic director, retiring after this season, won the Tony Award this past year. The next show, Pride and Prejudice, is December 4th through the 29th. For more information, you can go to theaterworks.org.